Good morning. We are so glad you're here today. We're thankful that you've chosen to be here. Thankful for our visitors. As always, we invite you to come back. Grateful that you've chosen to come our way today. If you're looking for a church home, I hope that uh, you'll consider us. We'd love to have you as a church member of the church here and have you as a part of our family. We're so grateful for the many people that have identified with us. And our goal is to do what we can to expand the borders of the kingdom in this community and not just here, but around the world. Thank you for being here. In our lesson today, we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want to direct your attention today. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The theme of our study today centers around the idea. Sometimes in life, we fail to appreciate how blessed we are. There are times in life when we really don't know how blessed we are until we lose those blessings. Many of us have been blessed with good health. And you think about the health that you enjoy. As we grow older in life, sometimes we begin to fail physically and mentally in our abilities. There are a lot of blessings that we enjoy in Christ. Sometimes we don't realize how blessed we are until we lose those blessings. You think about where you are in this life, how blessed you are as a child of God, as a citizen in this country. We've all been immensely blessed. And yet sometimes, sadly, we take for granted those blessings, don't we? So today I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Very interesting passage. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, we've got 22 verses, and we want to look at this text as we think about the children of Israel and their relationship to God. And so as we focus our minds on the theme today, sometimes we don't realize or know how blessed we are in life, borne out in this passage. I want to begin today by, first of all, talking about the desire of the people. The events recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 8 took place during the days of the judges, a period of about 350 years, a very dark period in the history of the Israelite nation. God's people had been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. They had been blessed immensely. And you read the book of Judges and you'll see that it was cyclical in nature. God's people would be faithful to Him and then over the course of time they would become unfaithful. God would then raise up people to oppress them. They would cry out and He would deliver them by means of a judge. And this happened over and over and over again. There are about 15 judges over the course of 350 years. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we have a record of the desire of the people, that is, of the children of Israel. And they come before Samuel, the great prophet of God. Samuel was a good man. And you remember Samuel had a godly mother by the name of Hannah, and she prayed for a child, and God blessed her. 
with a young fellow by the name of Samuel. And he became a great and mighty prophet of God. And so as Samuel grew old in life, the children of Israel came before him and they made a request. Their request was for a king. And so listen, if you will, again to verse 4. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel in Ramah, which was north of the city of Jerusalem, just a few miles. And they said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Some might have the idea that this caught God off guard, but not so. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God anticipated a day in which the children of Israel would cry for a king. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in about verse 14, He said, when you come into the land which I'm giving you and possess it and dwell in it, you're going to say, I want a king so that I might be like all the nations around me. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God, through Moses, sets forth divine advice regarding the behavior of one who would occupy the throne. God said, number one, he's not to multiply horses for himself. Neither shall he cause the people to multiply, or rather for the people to go to Egypt and multiply horses. For the Lord had said, you shall not return that way again. And then he said, he's not to multiply for himself wives, lest his heart be turned away. And then he was not to multiply silver and gold for himself. Wouldn't be long before the children of Israel would see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Solomon, a great example of someone who blatantly disregarded God's will regarding stipulations set forth in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So God anticipated the day when they would cry out for a king. And God set forth, as I said a moment ago, divine advice, admonitions if you please, on how the king ought to conduct himself. Matter of fact, Moses said that he was to take for himself or write for himself the law in a book. And he was to read it all the days of his life so that he might fear the Lord his God. That was one of the safeguards, so to, so to speak. But now, what was the reason for the children of Israel wanting a king? Well, the Bible tells us. Look again. In verse 5, the elders of Israel said, Make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Two thoughts here very quickly. Number one, their request was worldly. Number two, their request was wayward. Back in Judges chapter 21, in verse 25 and also in chapter 17 and about verse 6, you remember the writer said, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The bottom line is, 
They had rejected God as king over them. God had been their king. And God had been very gracious and good to the children of Israel. Matter of fact, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, He said, You've seen what I did and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God entered into a covenant relationship with the children of Israel. He blessed them and cared for them time and again. And now they've reached a point in their history when they want a king so that they might be like all the nations around them. Their conduct was wayward. Their request was worldly in nature. Let me just ask this question. What does the world have to offer those of us who belong to God? Tell me one thing that the world can offer us. I'm talking about legitimately. You know, the devil is so crafty. And he can make the world look so appealing and so good. And yet John said, love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, he said, are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passes away. When you hook your your wagon to the world, You are identifying with a system that ultimately will not win in the end. Sometimes we forget, number one, who we are, don't we? God had set apart the children of Israel unto Himself. Go back and read in Exodus chapter 13, when God set apart the firstborn. And the Bible says that those of us who belong to the church today, We are the church of the firstborn. That is, we belong to God. Sometimes we forget who we are. The Bible says that we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints. We have been delivered out of the world and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's in that sphere that we enjoy, as Paul would say, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. God has blessed us immensely. And yet there are times when we lose our our way in life and forget who we are. We are children of the King, aren't we? When you look at the nation of Israel, they were God's chosen people. And yet I hear Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 2, you're an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession whom He's called forth out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's the relationship that we enjoy. And yet, like Israel of old, we forget who we are and we forget whose we are. The Lord bought the church with His blood. That church belongs to Him. We're not to identify with the world. We're not to look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world form alliances with the world. Why? Because we belong to God, don't we? And yet, sadly, we forget that. And then I think about congregations sometimes of God's people. And I see congregations that are looking around in the world and asking the question, what is it that the world wants and we're going to give it to them? The world doesn't have anything to offer the church. Where did we ever get the idea that we could mold and make ourselves like the world so that we might become more attractive to the world. 
That makes no sense. The calling card of churches of Christ is truth. Jesus said you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. You can't out-gimmick and gadget the world. Our bre- some of our brethren don't understand that. They have this idea that they've somehow got to be in tune and in step with the denominational world. Look, the church of Christ is not a denomination. The church of Christ is non-denominational. It is pre-denominational. There is nothing that we can learn from the world. We, we can learn everything from God's Word, can't we? There are some elders that need to sit back and think about who they are and who they belong to. Who they belong to. And rather than looking around and trying to identify what the world wants, they need to be asking the question, what does God want? That's all that matters. When I hear of elders sitting down and discussing among themselves whether or not instrumental music is right or wrong, that sends up a red flag to me. You know, one of the qualifications of an elder is he is not to be a novice in the faith. I don't have to go back and restudy whether or not instrumental music is right or wrong. I know what the Bible teaches. And I want men who serve as elders to know what the Bible teaches. I don't have to go back and restudy the woman's role in the church because I know what the Bible teaches. It's that plain. And sometimes elders act like novices in the church. And they stick their hand up and wait for the wind to blow and see whichever way the wind's blowing, and that's where they're going to stack up. That is not biblical. It's not godly. Elders are to be leaders. They've got to be out in front. The church can't rise above her leadership. So you think about the children of Israel. We give them credit for being so blessed by God. And yet here they are as a nation of people, and God had specifically said, look, you are not to align yourselves with the nations around you. And what did they do? They come to Samuel and say, we want you to make us a king. Why? So that we might be like all the nations around us. Are you kidding me? We're not like the world. We don't take direction from the world. We take our cue from God's Word, don't we? I mean, didn't Peter say, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God? Whatever God says, that's what we want to do. Jesus said, all authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And God said with regard to Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, hear Him. We better be listening to what God says and not what the world says. You line up with the world, I'm telling you what, you're you're in a heap of trouble. Individually, collectively, we cannot be like the world. So you think about the desire of the people. Should elderships, should they listen to the people? Sure. They need to be in tune with the thinking of the people. But elders have the responsibility of looking to the Word of God. This, the church is not a democracy. It's not the majority rules. What rules is a divine standard. It's called God's Word. It's a canon, a rule. That's why Paul said, walk by the same rule. That's what we're trying to do.
Now, there's a second thought. Secondly, we think about the displeasure of the prophet. Now, note, if you would, Samuel's reaction. In verse 6, the Bible says, but the thing displeased Samuel. In other words, it was an irritation to him. There is, there, is a, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, isn't there? When you look around in the world today, and you look at the political and moral climate of our country, does it not bother you? When you see the direction that we as a nation of people are moving toward, does it not cause alarm? It ought to. When you look at the world around us and you think about what all's going on in the world, it ought to be a red flag running up the flagpole. We're living in a day and time when sadly many, many people have no regard for the will of God nor for the Word of God. Jesus demonstrated righteous indignation, didn't He, when He cleansed the temple. Was that not an example of that? When you see babies being aborted on demand, does that, not, does that not displease you? Does it not cause within you righteous indignation? I mean, I think about our Constitution. All men are created equal. Well, if that's the case, what about the baby in the womb? That's inconsistency, isn't it? So we talk about the irritation of Samuel. But then note, if you would, the supplication. In verse 6, the Bible says, The thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel, what did he do? The Bible says he prayed to the Lord. When we face tough times in life, you know what we need to do? We ought to get down on our knees and pray to God. When Hezekiah was threatened by the Assyrians, the Bible says that he spent a lot of time in prayer to God. Really, he laid the matter out before God. And so I think about Samuel. Samuel, Samuel is displeased at the request of the people. So the very first thing he does, he goes before the throne of God and prays. Didn't Peter say the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous? His ears are open to their prayers? Do we not have the awesome responsibility today to pray to God, to pray about the affairs of the world, to pray about the church, to pray about what we're facing in life? Well, of course. You know, Jesus said that men ought to always pray and not faint or grow weary. Here was a godly man faced with a difficult circumstance. He's dismayed, he's displeased, despondent. And so he goes before the throne of God and prays. Now, note if you would the reaction to Samuel. Here's what the Lord said, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Number one, God said, they've rejected me. Not only had they rejected the Lord, but they were rebellious to the Lord. And he goes all the way back in history. Note if you would, verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, 
He said, with which they have forsaken me. And serve other gods, so they are doing. So, God said, they've rejected me, and they have rebelled against me. God was their king. Those of us who belong to the body of Christ, who is our king? Didn't Peter say on Pentecost Day, Luke chapter, or rather Acts chapter 2, didn't he say, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. If you're a child of God, Jesus is to be your Lord. In other words, He is to be the one who is reigning and ruling in your life. He has absolute rule. And yet here were God's people, they had been so abundantly blessed. And God had cared for them time and again. He had graciously provided for them. Even when they were in the wilderness for 40 years, He sustained them, didn't He? Over and over again, God cared for them, and yet what did they do? They rebelled against Him. And here they are rejecting His reign over them. Imagine that. They have rejected the very God of heaven. They want, they want an earthly king. They want somebody that they can see, that they can touch, that they can listen to, verbally speaking. Were there any deficiencies in the kingship of God? Can you find any flaws in God's character and His ability to lead the children of Israel? I can't find any. Can you? They had everything they needed, and yet they failed to see it. You know, sometimes we don't realize how blessed we are in life, do we? We really don't. The children of Israel, in many ways, they had it made and didn't realize it. They were looking for some type of artificial stimulant or substitute. And they had the best of the best. That was God. There's a third thought I want to share with you. It has to do with the difficulties of the people. You better be careful what you ask for in life. The decisions that you make today may not necessarily impact you today, but you mark it down. The decisions that you make today will ultimately affect you for good or bad. Choice is yours. They had the opportunity to make wise choices. They made foolish choices, didn't they? And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, first of all, I want you to think about the commands of the king as outlined by God through Samuel. God said no long ago, all right, Samuel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to heed their voice. They want a king, then give them a king. And you remember over in Hosea, years later, God said, I gave them a king in my wrath and took him away in my anger. Go back and look at the history of the Israelite kings. In the northern kingdom, there was not a single king that was good or godly. The southern kingdom didn't do much better. And yet, they're clamoring for a king. They want a king. God said, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but you need to understand something. It's going to cost you greatly. If you get out into the world, you need to understand something. 
You hook your wagon to the world and you're going to pay for it at some point in time. So, what about the behavior of this king? There are two things Samuel tells the children of Israel. Number one, there's going to be forced labor. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and he's going to make them serve me. Listen to him. Verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. And to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. We'll set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields, etc., etc. So first he's saying they're going to be forced labor. Secondly, there will be forced levies. In other words, he's going to tax you. You don't realize how blessed you are. You want a king? I'm going to give you a king, but you need to understand, because you want a king, this is what's going to cost you. Look at verse 14. He said, He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. Again, they were blessed. They just didn't realize how blessed they were. So what about the consequences? For every action, there's a corresponding reaction, isn't there? We're talking about the difficulties of the people. And the Bible tells us in very explicit terminology the behavior of the king who would serve in that capacity. So Samuel just lays it out before the children of Israel. But again, there's a price tag attached. So I want you to think for a minute or two about the consequences of a king. Those consequences were physical and spiritual in nature. Would you see something? Go back and look at verse 11. In verse 11, God said through the prophet, He will take your sons. Look at verse 13. He'll take your daughters. In verse 14, He'll take the best of your fields. Verse 15, He'll take a tenth of your grains. Verse 16, He'll take your men's servants. Verse 17, He'll take a tenth of your sheep. Six times, God said to the children of Israel, you want a king? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to take and take and take. Who's that sound like to you? Sound like the world, doesn't it? Sounds to me like the devil. The devil is not in the giving business. The devil is in the taking business. You give him a piece of ground, I can tell you what, he's going to take, he's going to take more than what you bargained for. The devil will promise you the world and he will deliver on not one thing. Do you believe that? kind of like the casino business. There was an article a few years back. A fellow was being interviewed who was over one of the casinos or affiliated with a casino in Vegas. And he said, you know, you can have shows and entertainment. You can have 
varying people come in. You can have lots of great food. He said, but the bottom line is it's about gambling. I won't tell you what, the gambling business, they're not, in the, they're not in the business to give you money. They're in the business to take your money. Now they can, they can spend it however they want to spend it, but I'm here to tell you they will take your money and they'll take the last dime you have. And that's how the devil operates. He will take and take and take until there is nothing else to take. These folks were going to pay for their decision. There were consequences to the actions involved in making this request. Are there not physical consequences to the decisions that we make? You ever seen somebody who is addicted to alcohol? When they get up in the morning, the very first thing that they're thinking about is a drink. You know what they think about when they go to bed at night? They think about alcohol. They go, to, they go to bed at night in a drunken stupor. People that use various types of chemical substances. You know what's on their mind 24-7? The drug of choice. Drugs and alcohol take, 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 and they take a toil on your body, don't they? Didn't Paul say, be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You sow to the flesh, and Paul said, you're going to reap corruption. There are folks all over this country who are enslaved to various things. And why? Because they made bad decisions in life. That's why we've got to make wise decisions. Does it matter who we align ourselves with? Yes. Does it matter the activities we involve ourselves in? Yes. Does it matter about the things that we do on a daily basis? Again, the answer is yes. Spiritually. Are there not consequences to our decisions? The answer again is yes, isn't it? Listen to what Samuel said to the children of Israel. Look at verse 18. God said, you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. God had been fighting their battles, and as far as I can tell, God was successful, wasn't he? And you're telling me you want somebody else to come in and replace the very God who has blessed you time and again? You want to replace Him as your leader? Have you lost your mind? Verse 21, Samuel heard all the words of the people and repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, heed their word, heed their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Spiritually speaking, here's what God said in effect. There's going to come a day when you're going to need my help. You're going to need me, and you're going to cry out to me. And guess what? You can cry all you want, but I'm not going to hear you. Now you think about turning your back on the greatest ally you have in life. That's the Lord. You talk about flying solo, that's, that's where you are. You're out here all alone. You're out here by yourself. God said to the children of Israel, let me tell you what, I'm going to give you a king. 
But you need to understand something. When the time comes, when you're hurting and you're crying out for help, I will not hear you. You get out in the world and you start living like the world does and acting like the world does. And let me tell you what, you have severed yourself from all of the spiritual blessings you enjoyed. You cry all you want, but you don't have the Lord on your side. The danger of failing to recognize how blessed we are in this life. We're blessed. The children of Israel, they were blessed beyond compare. They just didn't realize it. What they needed to do was recognize they had a king. That king was God. We have that same king today, don't we? There is no substitute for the kingship of God. The sovereignty of Christ, the sovereignty of God. I like the words of the psalmist in Psalm 99 when the psalmist said, The Lord reigns. God's in control. And let me tell you what, I want God on my side when I'm fighting the battles of life. I want God on my side when I'm facing trouble and trial and difficulties in this life. Do you not want God on your side? I mean, here's Samuel telling the children of Israel, look, you're going to come to a point in time in your life. You're going to need my help, but let me, let me say this. Won't be there. You got a cell phone, iPhone, a droid? If you don't pay your bill, you can cry out all you want on that phone. You can call anybody you want, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, you won't have a connection. You leave the Lord. You can cry all you want. He won't hear you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. To believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. I know you believe that or you wouldn't be here. If you believe Jesus is the divine Son of God and you would willingly repent of all your sins, confess His name before others, and then be baptized into Christ, immersed in water. Let me tell you why you need to be immersed in water. So that your sins can be forgiven. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day. That's not up for debate. No, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. So you're baptized into Christ, you contact the blood of Christ, and then you're added to the body of Christ. You've got to be in the body because that's where the saved reside, Ephesians 5.23. And then to be faithful. Faithful day in, day out. Doesn't mean you're infallible, but rather you're striving to the best of your ability to live a Christian life, to walk in the light. If you do that, guess what? You have the promise of life eternal. If you're here this morning and you're not faithful to His cause, you need to be restored. You need the prayers of the church. Listen, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. It might be you're here today and you can think back in that time in your life when you were faithful. And you think about all those blessings and now you look at your life. You're not happy. You're not satisfied. You're not content. Things are not working out in life. And it's dawned on you. I didn't realize what I had. You can come home today.
and God will forgive. Won't you come as we stand and sing?